for the week of June 25th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media based here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my two studious co-hosts, Jigger Shaw of Jigger Shaw Consulting and Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions. Uh, Jigger, how are you? Where are you this week? Uh, we, we can't ever keep track of your location. <laughs> Doing well. I'm in Manila uh, today in the Philippines uh, attending the Asian Development Bank's uh, Asia Clean Energy Conference. Nice. So you're a day ahead of us. So you're, you're going to be able to talk about all the subjects that we discuss on the podcast, knowing what happened already. Exactly. <laughs> and Catherine, you're still here in Washington, D.C., feeling the creeping summer heat. How are you? Just great. It does sort of feel like Manila here. So um, I'm excited that we all probably feel about the same. <laughs> well, it's good you're here because uh, the city of Washington is abuzz this week about Obama's big climate speech this afternoon in which the president will unveil his big climate plan amidst the sweltering heat. Um, so we're recording this show before the speech itself, but the details of the plan have been released. Um, groups on all sides are reacting. So we're going to talk about what the plan is all about for a good portion of this show. And then in the aftermath of the leak about da NSA data mining, we're going to look at the picture for big data in the energy world. Is big data the key to understanding and changing our energy system, or yet another worry for privacy advocates? And finally, we're going to look at the transformation underway in the automobile sector. Younger Americans are driving less for a variety of reasons, leading experts to ask, has the U.S. reached peak car? Signs point to the affirmative, but we still have a long way to go before we understand if this is a long-term trend. So, the big news that everyone is discussing today, Obama's climate speech. Uh, the president is going to be at Georgetown University this afternoon to unveil his plan for addressing climate change, and this is very significant for a lot of reasons. Uh, three big ones come to mind. One, it's Obama's chance to now live up to his earlier promise that climate change would be a top priority in his second term, and that he would address it through executive powers if Congress would not. Uh, second, it's a test to see if environmentalists, uh, who have put a lot of pressure on the administration over Keystone XL and natural gas fracking, will line up with the president. And thirdly, it's a chance for the administration to position itself in international climate negotiations to prove that America is moving forward and gear up for future negotiations on binding commitments. So this is a big deal. A lot of eyes are on the speech today. We've all read through the plan. Uh, we've all got our thoughts on what's in there and what's not in there. Uh, Catherine, can you just give us a quick rundown of some of the most important pieces of this strategy and what you find interesting here? Sure. There's sort of three main sections. One is U.S. policy. The second is adaptation. And the third is international. Um, on the U.S. policy, and I would say just on the report holistically, a lot of this is just a compilation of 
what programs are out there already. Not a lot of huge new efforts, but sort of a catalog of this is what we've been doing. Um, these are the existing programs. We're really good at convening. We're good at task forces. We're good at compiling data. So within that, though, there are some there are some new initiatives. One is on the U.S. policy side. I think the biggest one is the EPA um, for new and existing power plants that looks like it is going to take the NRDC proposal um, for in to baseline or benchmark emission profiles on a state by state work with states um, so the states with the highest level of coal use um, would be required to reduce emissions from higher benchmark levels um, I think that's probably the biggest piece on the domestic front all the others are really what I can tell um, either repackaging or doubling down on efforts they already have, um, you know, increasing cafe standards for heavy-duty vehicles. Um, one thing that kind of stood out was $8 billion for self-pay loan guarantees for advanced fossil technologies, and it'll be interesting to see what that means exactly. Um, and so I, th I think that on the U.S. policy side that the EPA uh, regulatory front is the biggest piece on that. On the adaptation front... I think this is interesting. It's a you know it's a little depressing if you think about this is what we're this is where we are now is we're having to figure out how to adapt. Um, but one of the biggest things that the administration can do that I think they've outlined here is to collect data and be able to present it in a way that is compelling. Um, in addition to helping people figure out how do we adapt, I think the data is going to be really important. That will build the case um, not only politically but also to the financial sector. If we can look at what is out there, how can we track this? What what does it really look like, you know, we're looking at in the future? Um, and then finally, on the international front, uh, trying to make sure that we continue efforts and working with countries like China and India and Brazil, uh, that we continue engaging in the Sustainability for All initiative uh, through the UN. Um, and interestingly, they put a piece in there about um, the International Energy Agency talking about phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. And, and they put a blurb in there about um, calling for elimination of U.S. fossil fuel tax subsidies, uh, which is interesting because that's a totally U.S. political thing that uh, isn't going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> but it's interesting that they mentioned that in there and that in the international section. Yeah, and we did hear from the president recently at the G20 summit that he did want to phase out fossil fuel subsidies and that this was part of the the current political and policy discussion around energy subsidies generally. Um, on the international side, I, I do want to get into some of the domestic stuff and talk about these EPA regulations and the, the fuel economy standards and efficiency standards. But, but since we're on international stuff, what I found really interesting was that uh, the Obama administration looks prepared to commit to stop public financing of coal plants internationally, given with some outs um, but it looks like they're making some moves to direct organizations like Exim Bank, OPIC, and others to stop financing international coal plants. This seems like a very big deal to me. Uh, Jigger, you work a lot on international energy issues. You've focused on this coal issue. Is this as big as I think it is? Gosh, I hope so. I mean, I think that the World Bank keeps announcing every time it funds a coal plant, this will be their last coal plant. And, you know, what I found out recently is that the U.S. State Department itself is the one that's actually pushing the latest coal plant in Kosovo that the, uh, that the World Bank's considering. So, you know, hopefully this means that the, the U.S. government's going to 
pull back on its support of this coal plant, um, which, by the way, you know, the World Bank actually has a meeting on July 19th where they're supposed to uh, adopt some language that says that uh, um, that they will not fund any new coal unless it's absolutely necessary because no other alternatives exist. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the first time that the administration has made this type of public declaration. Am I correct in, in thinking that? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think before they sort of hedged and they sort of said, well, you know, we certainly, you know, want to promote all of our technologies. But I think that um, the the thing that's quite interesting about this is, you know, it's all well and good to say that the World Bank isn't going to fund it. But what happens when it's Export-Import Bank that needs to fund it? Export-Import Bank has been funding a lot of coal this last 12 months. And so it'll be interesting to see whether he really means that we shouldn't be exporting our coal technology as well. So back to domestic issues. There are a number of important pieces here. Again, as Catherine outlined, this presidential memorandum directing the EPA to complete carbon pollution standards for power plants, that's a big one. But it's not really new. There is a pollution standard already underway for new plants, and this memorandum just says to the EPA, hey, let's figure out a way to do this for existing plants. Let's restart the process and try to speed it up. So while important, really nothing new on the agenda, just sort of a repackaged version. What is new is using a piece of the Clean Air Act to do this on a state level and provide some level of flexibility for states that may be more coal-dependent, and perhaps they can leverage more alliances among conservatives for that approach. But <laughs> Well, look, I, I, I think that What's what's really going to be interesting about the president's speech is to see whether he actually recognizes the fact that this is an opportunity, right? When you read his talking points that was released to all of us early, you know, they basically read as though this is a moral mission of sacrifice and we are going to sacrifice our way until we can't handle sacrifice anymore. Um, and for those of us in the clean tech space, you know, we think that that's a whole bunch of malarkey and that no. in fact – this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the now, planet. So now, hold on we'll a second. Now, hold on a second. I think that if you watch the video promoting his speech, if you read some of the copy coming out of the White House, it's very clear that they're framing this around economic development, around America's unique stature in the world to develop uh, groundbreaking technologies, to use the power of informed citizens to help attack this problem. And it seems to be a pretty positive message from the administration. So I, I do disagree. I don't think it's about sacrifice. I think it's they're trying to frame this around leveraging the unique attributes of Americans to actually make real change and do something good for the country. So that was my takeaway. Yeah. And you know, it was interesting. I don't know if you saw that the U.S. coal mining company's stock plummeted yesterday. I did see I mean, that. This is like a big economic signal to say, we're going to be doing other things. And, and, and you're going to be able to benefit economically if you're doing technologies, if you're working in clean tech space, if you're working in, in technologies that are going to mitigate climate, but not so much if you're in the coal industry. Look, I mean, I, I, I get the fact that the White House is trying to spin this to be you know, optimistic. But the thing is, is that the only way to really spin this is actually to go all the way. This sort of halfway hedging piece, which is we control EPA and so we're going to push EPA, but DOE is still going to be all the above. And, you know, things like, for instance, 
the, the president has $80 billion in super ESPC authority to do energy-saving performance contracts for the government within government facilities. They also have this three to 7,000 megawatt renewable energy target within the army. You know, that's a huge amount of economic, you know, um, value going into clean tech. Um, and, and it's not clear to me that he's actually turning, you know, the this sort of negative vibe from the Republicans, which is um, this stuff is going to cost more, this stuff is going to cost more, and turning it into this stuff is actually the greatest wealth creation opportunity we have available to us. But this is classic Obama, right? I mean, he doesn't usually pick these big ideological battles and instead tries to be a realist on issues and, and find a, a common ground. Uh, now, some conservatives might disagree with me on that, but I think generally when you look at energy issues, as we've discussed on this podcast, he has been very middle of the road and very all of the above. And this is an extension of that. Now, with that said, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. And although most of it is repackaged and framed in a different context, it does show that this administration has been working on a lot of issues behind the scenes. Now, many of them are task forces that direct government agencies to study issues, but I do think it puts in place a dialogue which has not been put in place before to get the government thinking about climate change in new ways uh, that can help address the problem. Right, but Stephen, let me ask you the question this way, and Catherine, obviously, you know, you, you know, maybe I'll ask it to you as well, is that if you really believe that coal is back on track in this country, which it is, right, that basically all of the gains from natural gas displacing coal in 2011, 2012 have almost been erased by coal coming back because natural gas prices have gone up, and the president still wants to reach our climate change reduction goals by 2020, which is right around the corner, and a lot of these coal regulations aren't going to be in full effect to necessarily shut all these things down by that, that year, then, you know, wouldn't it be like advantageous to say that basically we can use energy efficiency to eliminate all load growth in the country because of all of our ingenuity and that we could meet 100% of all of our incremental generation you know, needs through renewable energy? We're almost there already. Yeah, and they, they do focus a lot on energy efficiency, a lot during on this report. There, there are a lot of different initiatives on energy efficiency that that they're talking about in this um, in this report. And some of the things, while as Stephen said, while they may seem incremental, you know, the ESPC piece, for example, standardizing a contract to finance uh, energy efficiency is actually a big deal for agencies. I used to work for the Federal Energy Management Program, and the more things you can put in that are kind of plug and play, the better, because otherwise you're reinventing every time, you're spending more money, more time, um, making it harder for the federal government to, to do efficiency. I think they're definitely doubling down on energy efficiency. I'm sorry, though. I mean, this is just such craziness. Look, I mean, like, you know, Andy Karzner, when in 2008, already did all the standardization. The fact that the Obama administration lost the binders and has to do the work again is sort of, you know, government 101. But on top of that, I mean, some of the soaring rhetoric matters. And this president's supposed to be good at the soaring rhetoric. We need the entrepreneurs, investors, and corporations in this country to be inspired that this president is actually choosing sides. And if he's not willing to choose sides, he might as well not give the speech at all. I think it's very clear that the president is choosing a side. I, I, I'm sorry, that that's, that's pretty off the mark. The president has made it very clear that 
he wants to address climate change and that there are a lot of moving pieces in place here that are going to help get the job done. Is it the perfect overarching plan? Uh, has the president fumbled in the past in not talking about climate change in the way he should have? Yes, but there is more in here than any president has ever tried to do. And I think it's very clear that the president has chosen a side. Yeah, and I think we will hear the soaring rhetoric. I think that's what the speech is going to be about. Well, I'm going to I'm going to listen to this speech with a bottle of vodka and I'm going to take a shot every time he <laughs> says natural gas is the bridge to the future. And hopefully I don't get drunk. <laughs> well, haven't you already heard the speech? I mean, you're in the Philippines. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've already heard it. So, yeah, no, I'm kidding. I think that this international piece is really the key. The president is, in my opinion, not trying to reach out to environmentalists as much as he is trying to reach out to the international community and say, hey, we're trying to do something. And a lot of this stuff is already underway, is being repackaged, but is being done so in a way that shows the environmental community that the administration is doing quite a bit. And as we get underway and talk about talks for binding international carbon reduction commitments after 2015 and into 2020, the U.S. really has to prove to countries like China and India uh, and, and Brazil and others that we've done a lot in order to convince them that they need to adhere to binding commitments. And I think that this is just as much a message to the international community as it is to domestic environmental groups who have been putting pressure on the president. Well, we'll see. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, Stephen, that um, there is the international section of the document that says, oh, here are all the great things we're already involved in. But then I think that you're right, that by by combining it with the adaptation, the U.S. policy piece, he is saying internationally, we've I have been doing a lot on a number of fronts, and here are all the things I'm doing. I, I agree. I, I think it's a dual message. I think it's a message to us, to the U.S., and uh, to the international community as well. All right. Yes, indeed, we will see, and we'll be watching the president's speech today. Uh, you can find all the information for the plan on our website. So let's move to the second topic as U.S. officials search the world for Edward Snowden, the former government contractor who blew the whistle on the NSA data mining program, a debate continues about information privacy. Uh, that's a good chance for us to talk about data in the energy sector as we deploy more smart meters, smart thermostats, energy management systems, and all sorts of other connected points that will make up the so-called Internet of Things. Catherine, I want to turn to you first again on this issue because you're our smart grid expert. You've followed this a lot as uh, former president of the Gridwise Alliance, and you've put a lot of thought into data collection, I'm sure. Um, did the recent revelations about the NSA data mining program apply to data in the energy sector? I mean, how do you think about this in that context? And should we be treating our energy data uh, the same way as we do our phone calls and our internet behavior? It's it's funny because I think it there's actually the opposite. I think in perception, yes, the perception is for some people that my utility is collecting every piece of information about me, and they will know, uh, you know, what kind of food I'm buying for my children and how many socks I have in my drawer. Uh, and but the reality is, I don't think the utilities have they have like too much data. They don't even the data analytics is a huge problem for them because whereas the NSA is combing for specific pieces of information. I think that the utilities 
are getting much more than they ever thought they would get. And it's like, how do we even begin to comb through this data to get what we, what do we really want out of it anyway? Um, so I think it's an interesting issue. The Future of Privacy Forum has done a lot of work on this and they've, and they've worked with trustee to have a, you know, smart grid seal to make sure that every, you know, there's some privacy built into meters. I think the issue is less about utilities having access to customer data than about what a utility is going to do with the data because that'll be good. That's interesting. Yeah, that that to me is really big because utilities don't necessarily have the capacity to manage this data and they've then passed it on to third-party companies that are doing a lot of big data analysis and a lot of individual customer analysis. Now, there are very few regulations uh, that deal with data privacy in the energy sector. And, and, you know, while there are regulations that apply to utilities, what happens when a device like a smart thermostat managed by a third-party company is uh, transmitting data, very granular data, about a, a consumer or a homeowner's behavior within a house? And how do you manage that? And, and so it seems that the third-party data management and interception is the real issue here. Yeah, my sense is that they're trying first to do the um, voluntary, you know, the future of privacy uh, and trustee program to let, let's do this as a voluntary effort. I do think we're going to need to have some kind of um, some kind of regulatory or legislative uh, process put into place because there there is going to be a lot of data out there. Jigger, how do you feel about the data situation, both in privacy and about the importance of managing data? Uh, you know, this is the the amount of connected data points that we see that enable us to understand and manage our our energy use is staggering and is going to continue to grow. Are there any particular issues that you're watching as this unfolds and, and grows? Well, I really think it's a balance, right? I mean, ultimately, the reason why the Snowden issue was so large is this sort of balance between the need for NSA to keep Americans safe and the need for us to, you know, follow the Constitution. Um, and I think in this in this space, I think you're going to see, you know, not such stark national security issues, but you're you're going to see this, you know, desire for people to find a way to for one tenth the cost save a whole bunch of energy um, using uh, big data. Um, and in exchange, you have a lot of these hurdles you have to jump through and, 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 and trust that you're going to have to put into the utilities to actually utilize that data with third parties properly um, as to not you know, reveal any sort of um, goings-on within the home or, or you know, allow folks to really look at patterns like you know, when people are on vacation or or whatnot, but I but I think that the um, there's just so much excitement right now in the marketplace around how much money people are going to be able to save and how many megawatt hours people are going to save um, based on based on big data that I just don't think there's anything stopping it right now. Yeah, and- yeah, I, I agree, and I think that this is a the great space for innovation um, and for new companies that are learning how to crunch it and and figure out how to sort of parse this for utilities. I think this is a great space for innovation. I mean, just slightly separately from this topic, though, I mean, one thing I will predict, I think, is going to happen is that you're going to start to see a large amount of existing energy efficiency money transferred over to exploiting 
all of the opportunities within big data because a lot of states are saying we're just not getting the bang for our buck out of energy efficiency retrofit programs. And so we're going to shift this money over to get a bigger bang for our buck. And so I think I do think that you're going to see a lot of pushback there. Are you actually seeing that? I haven't heard that actually happening. No, it hasn't happened yet, but I've been talking to six different states already on that. Um, and they're just saying, look, you know, we're not hitting our megawatt hour targets um, for energy efficiency voluntary portfolio standards. And, um, you know, in Maryland, that's basically what Constellation ended up doing. They were offering huge rebates for retrofits. And, um, and they finally just decided to move it all to big data. And so Constellation is using most of its money for meeting the energy portfolio standard in Maryland um, into big data. I, I do think that this will play out from a privacy perspective, much like it has with online behavior. You know, consumers get a little weirded out with companies granularly tracking their behavior, but they tolerate it because it brings ease of commerce. Uh, it helps them manage their their personal information much easier. And when you look at the polls, uh, many of them have a majority of Americans support NSA data gathering around their internet and phone behavior because they don't feel like it is a total violation of their privacy because they believe it's an anonymous big data gathering type activity. And my guess is that the same thing will generally play out in the energy space, that consumers will see the benefit. Uh, There will be a lot of growing concerns about privacy and what people can and can't see. Uh, and how that data is managed and passed on, but uh, the benefits will ultimately outweigh many of those concerns. I agree. And on to our final topic. Uh, We've heard about peak oil for decades, but now we've got a new term to consider, peak car. Uh, Not surprisingly, Americans started driving less after the 2008 financial crisis and recession, But unlike previous economic slowdowns, the drop in miles driven hasn't slowed. And according to new data from the Department of Transportation, when adjusted for population growth, Americans are driving fewer miles than at any point since 1995. And it appears the peak in driving was actually in 2005. So there have been a number of reports recently on this trend, and the general consensus is that younger Americans just aren't interested in cars the same way they once were. Uh, many of them are moving to cities where car ownership isn't needed. Uh, we have some stricter licensing policies in some states. There's the rising cost of insurance and the rising cost of gas are all contributing to the decline. Uh, and and these, trends, these trends have led experts to conclude that this really is the real deal, that we're not just in some post-recession dip, but within a true decline in driving. And I'll say briefly, just speaking from my personal experience as, you know, a 29-year-old living in the middle of a city, this conclusion rings very true to me. Um, I got rid of my car when I moved to a city. I ride a bike everywhere. And when I need a car, I can easily use car sharing services or simply rent a vehicle. And I almost never drive and don't have the need to. And then looking at the cost of gas and the cost of insurance, not to mention the hassle of owning a car in the city when I can simply borrow one. There's just no need to drive. And on top of that, uh, you know, for me, a car is not a status symbol. And that's the same way for many people I know. They could care less about what kind of car they own. And anecdotally, that's kind of part of this cultural shift for many Americans in how we see cars. So, you well, know, you, don't, you don't have to be anecdotal about it. I mean, you know, David Orr 
has done really, I think, the most comprehensive research in this area from Oberlin College, and he backs up everything you said. I mean, young people, in his estimation, actually, the biggest reason they're not buying new cars and instead living in places where they don't need a car is because they can't afford the car payment because they've got such large student loans to pay off. And so that's the one thing that they do without so that they can you know, better afford to pay their student loans back. But, you know, even more interesting out of David Orr's work is that um, is that baby boomers, when they, you know, go um, and become empty nesters, are moving back into the city and getting rid of their cars when they move back into the city to enjoy, you know, the city life after they've um, raised their kids in suburbia. So, so I think that, you know, the automakers are getting it from both ends, both the baby boomers and the recent college graduates. Yeah, and you think about the car culture. So, you know, the, the generation that listened to little GTO, uh, you know, today's generation would have been listening to my little Honda Civic, which just doesn't see it's, it's not as the, the car culture has definitely changed to not be we didn't grow up with cool cars. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that's really fascinating to me, I mean, going back to the big data stuff, um, is that is it this whole concept of car sharing from Uber to Zipcar to Sidecar to, you know, Lyft. I mean, there's so many of these entrepreneurial ventures. And <clears throat> the real test is going to be to figure out whether once these kids become, you know, sort of uh, fathers and mothers and they decide, you know, whether they actually need, you know, a minivan to, to take their kids around, whether a lot of these car sharing services and others will actually do the trick for them or whether they're going to end up going into car ownership. And the cultural shift is one interesting element to this. The other shift that will foster this is the regulatory environment. And you look at some states with insurance laws that are that don't allow car sharing um, or self-taxiing services, particularly New York, which has uh, not been very favorable for companies like Airbnb and relay rides and sidecar and get around. Um, these are really important considerations. And young people, people across generations are getting more and more comfortable with these services and are demanding them. The companies are growing around them, but the regulations still are not catching up to them. And the acceleration of this shift will really depend on whether the regulatory environment can keep up with the demand for these services. That's what I see as a major key to whether peak car or the decline in driving miles continues. I like the fact yeah. that so much of this has been organic with Zipcar and one of the bike share. This stuff's just popping up. And, and I think that's great because I think it shows that there's a real grassroots support. All right, so let's move on to our final segment where we hear something we don't know. Uh, Jigger, what do you what do you have? Uh, tell us something we don't know. Surprise us. Well, you know, I sort of already let the cat out of the bag in the earlier big data conversation, but just to give an emphasis here, I really do think that you know I've been talking to a number of energy efficiency programs around the country, and I've been fairly shocked at how introspective people have been. And um, they really do sort of see the fact that, that their dollars just aren't going that far with energy retrofit um, subsidies. And I, 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 I do hear in their voices that they're actually considering major shifts in their funding towards supporting very low-cost um, upgrading of buildings to, you know, to accommodate big data and continuous commissioning of buildings um, as opposed to um, continuing some of these um, 
these very capital intensive um, uh, energy retrofit programs. So I think that's going to be a huge fight coming and um, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Absolutely. And we're following that a lot in our coverage. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Uh, I just got uh, the announcement from Coda Holdings. I don't know if you remember, Coda had developed a super efficient electric vehicle and they had a lot of trouble trying to sell it. Um, it's it's very hard to start an OEM in this country. Well, they have been purchased by Fortress Investment Group, and they're going to focus newly on their brand, Coda Energy, which is all on grid storage. So it's pretty interesting that they've been able to kind of tra- make this transition from trying to be an OEM and sell a car to doing something that I think is going to actually provide a lot more value uh, to them and and to and to the entire society that they serve. That's cool. And I'll wrap up with mine. I was in Hawaii last week doing some reporting on the solar industry there. And as uh, many people in the solar industry know, particularly those who've been there, Hawaii is a solar lover's paradise. I mean, you fly in over the islands and, and you walk around and, you know, one or two out of every 10 houses has solar. There's a lot more solar on commercial rooftops. And uh, the, the penetration there is just much higher than at any other place, and the and the industry is booming. Um, however, the reason in the last couple of years it has been booming is because the state tax credit there has had um, a, a different definition around what an energy, what an, a solar system is. So, system owners with multiple connections, for example, if they have microinverters, could take advantage of multiple tax credits, 35% state tax credit. And that was causing some abuse. It was uh, really boosting solar installations there. And the state did change the definition of what a solar system is. Um, and and that kind of changed the business for solar in Hawaii. Um, with that said, the next discussion is around ramping down the state tax credit there, which is at 35%. Jigger, I know you've co-authored a piece on the importance of ramping this tax credit down. And interestingly, almost all the businesses I talked to said that they were supportive of a ramp down and believed that uh, business would still be booming there just because of electricity prices being so high, the federal ITC in place. I think that uh, there's a really interesting policy discussion going on in Hawaii right now that uh, is sort of indicative of the, the phase down and in incentives that we're talking about in other states. And, you know, Hawaii is going to look like a really good market for years to come, even with a ramp down in the state tax credit. That's the sense I got, at least. Cool. So that wraps up our show. You can read all the stories we covered on the podcast at our site, greentechmedia.com. We'll provide a few links to the stories on our podcast page for your reference. If you like the show, please pass on a link to your friends and colleagues. Um, Please blog about it, tweet about it, Facebook it. uh, Do anything you can to spread the word. And we now have our RSS feed up and running, so you can download that for your mobile device or your computer. And we also have the iTunes link. Just search for The Energy Gang on iTunes, and that way you can get constant updates whenever we post a new show. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, thanks for being with us. Good to talk to you this week. Great to be here again. And Jigger Shaw, thanks a lot. Good to talk to you as well. Always happy to be the, uh, the, the group curmudgeon. 
with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. We look forward to being with you next week. <laughs>